When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The FT. Welcome to World Weekly with me, Gideon Rachman. This week, the Murdoch scandal goes international. The FBI have announced in the last 12 hours that they are going to be investigating reports that News of the World journalists intercepted the voicemail messages of victims of 9-11 and their families. The Euro debt crisis reaches Italy. The auction of Treasury notes yesterday showed that the spreads widening, the yields rising. And in fact, Italy will soon be paying much more than it has since the euro was introduced. If this goes on for a prolonged period, the Bank of Italy was warning they're going to have serious problems. And the bombings in Mumbai is the stage set for Rahul Gandhi to step up as Prime Minister. Given that the Singh government has for the past six months to eight months been in a state of complete kind of rudderless journey, more and more people in the Congress and outside of it think it's only a matter of time before Rahul Gandhi steps up and agrees to be Prime Minister. First, to the story that's been obsessing the newspapers here in Britain all week, the continued unravelling of the news international empire. Joining me here in the studio is Ben Fenton, the FT's chief media correspondent. Ben, the latest news is the resignation of Rebecca Brooks, the CEO of News International. It does look like the whole situation is spiralling out of control now. It does look as though events are dictating their policy rather than the other way around, which is uh, never a good position to be in, especially when you're a media company. In fact, uh, I've hot-footed it here from writing the FT.com version of her resignation, and the resignation letter talks about her taking responsibility for the hurt that they've caused to other people and, and acting to protect the good name of News Corporation. But frankly, that should have been done within hours of the revelations on July the 4th that News of the World journalists had hacked into the phone of a 13-year-old girl who was at the time missing. People are talking now as if this is the end of an era. I mean, an era of 30 years where Murdoch was bestrode, the media stage was arguably one of the most influential figures in British politics. Is it really all over for Murdoch or is this just some sort of crisis that, you know, in a couple of years he'll emerge the other side from? No one has ever made any money by underestimating Rupert Murdoch and uh, I wouldn't do so now. But you do feel that there is a difference to this. Apart from anything else, one of the interesting quotes that he gave to the Wall Street Journal was, I'm tired. Now, that's not something that Rupert Murdoch, in his pomp, would have said. Many things that he said recently he probably wouldn't have said, but certainly he wouldn't have admitted to any kind of human frailty, I don't think. He is an 80-year-old man, and you couldn't expect him to be handling it with quite the vigour that he might have done 25 years ago. And I think in the way that politicians and journalists and maybe all human beings have a bit of a cowardly streak in them. You know, once the blood is in the water, they've scented weakness in Rupert Murdoch. And I found it absolutely astonishing, really, Won't think of it in context, that this week you had a House of Commons in which Rupert Murdoch could not find a single voice to speak up for him. There wasn't a single person who would offer him any comfort whatsoever. 
Yes, it was sort of almost faintly repulsive, wasn't it, to see everybody who'd, who'd sort of supped at his table rounding on him. John Stewart on The Daily Show uh, in the US, I mean, it's a sign of how much this, this scandal has, has grown, that he thought it was worth doing a bit on, described it as a schadenfreude gasm, which I think just about sums it up. Finally, the US, you mentioned it. I mean, and of course, for News Corp, that's the biggest market these days. Fox News is, is an enormous part of their empire. Is there any risk that this scandal now is going to spread to, to America and start poisoning the, the American bit of the News Corp empire? It already has spread in as much as the FBI have announced in the last uh, 12 hours that they are going to be investigating reports that News of the World journalists intercepted the voicemail messages of victims of 9-11 and their families. I think there are two issues there uh, that, that make that less of a danger than, than it appears from a headline point of view. One is the statute of limitations, the act under which they would be prosecuted were there to be evidence. Uh, it has a statute of limitations of five years, and obviously 9-11 was ten years ago, almost. Uh, and the, the other one is that the allegation was made in another British red-top tabloid, the Daily Mirror, which is a fierce rival of The Sun, Rupert Murdoch's Daily here and and frankly i think you know it's not a news story that the financial times would have printed because it was only substantiated by one source and nobody else has managed to to um, stand that up at all including the guardian which i think one should say has completely led the way on this story and and brought about the situation mr murdoch finds himself in ben thank you very much i'd better let you get back to this unfolding story thanks Gideon. thanks let's move to italy now and its part in the eurozone debt crisis Yesterday, Italy's austerity budget, crucial to calming the markets, was passed by the Italian Senate. But is the four-year, €40 billion package aimed at balancing the budget by 2014 going to be enough? Joining me on the line from Rome is the FT's bureau chief, Guy Dinmore. Guy, it looks like the Italian parliament has reacted with alacrity to the sudden threat that the eurozone crisis has spread to Italy. Do you think the parliament's done enough? I think the parliament has done what it can. It's a record breaking time that they've passed this budget in. By the end of the season, they will have done it within five days, which is unheard of in Italian history. The opposition helped by not tabling too many amendments, so there was no obstructionism. So even though the opposition is voting against the budget, and very, very fiercely, Berlusconi's slim majority means that it is going to get through. And in fact, during the week that the budget has been strengthened, the final figure is, is closer to 48 billion euros over four years, and it was going to be an original 40 billion. So in fact, Parliament has helped strengthen the package. And yet, although there hasn't been a full-scale panic in the markets, it does look like the markets are sort of gradually tightening their grip around Italy's throat by demanding higher interest rates, which will have a very negative effect on the budget over time. This is really the worrying aspect that even though this package has been going through Parliament relatively smoothly, the auction of Treasury notes yesterday showed that the spreads widening, the yields rising, and in fact Italy will soon be paying much more than it has since the euro was introduced. Luckily, though, the average maturity of Italian government bonds is about seven years, so it's not as if Italy is going to have to suddenly pay much more for its debt immediately. But if this goes on for a prolonged period, the Bank of Italy was warning in one of the Senate sessions that they're going to have serious problems. And what does the opposition have to say? I mean, you said that they're opposing this very fiercely. Of course, there could be elections quite soon. So what's their alternative programme? Are they saying no austerity? No, they certainly recognise the need for austerity, but what they're saying is actually that it hits the lower and middle classes much more than the wealthy. And there's a huge political row brewing over this, coupled with the various corruption scandals that are ripping through 
the government and members of parliament in the, the ruling coalition. So what the opposition is saying that, firstly, it's unfair, and secondly, what Italy needs is a much more concerted attack on the vested institutions and lobbies and powerful corporations that, that really run this country instead of hitting your average Italian. And at the centre of all this, I guess this past week have been two figures, Silvio Berlusconi, the Prime Minister, and Julio Tremonti, the Finance Minister. Let's talk about Mr Tremonti first. He certainly seems to have a gift for the gab. I mean, he's said some extraordinary things, including comparing the euro to the Titanic. Yes, I think his remarks there were interpreted in two ways. One really is a warning to Germany, which I think was his main intention, in fact, that, that Germany has really got to get its act together to solve Greece, because in his view, Italy is being unfairly attacked because of what is happening to Greece. But initially, it was also interpreted to mean that, that Italy itself is the Titanic. And one of the opposition parliamentarians speaking just now in, in the, the lower house said, if Italy is the Titanic, who's at the helm? It's the Berlusconi government. You've got to go. Tremonti has been given a very rough ride in parliament. But the real villain of the piece is definitely being portrayed as Berlusconi, who bizarrely, for a man who is said to be the master of communications and has this huge media empire, has been silent for over a week. Do you think his position is actually now under threat? I mean, he's been such an incredible survivor. He has. He's been in politics for 17 years. Over the last 10 years, he's run Italy for eight. He is an amazing survivor. He's incredibly wealthy. He is still in some ways quite charismatic. He's the glue that holds together the centre-right that no one else seems to have. But on the other hand, I think he is incredibly weakened by this. And I think when the dust is settled from this austerity package, the government is going to come under huge pressure from the unions, from the opposition. And really, whether his coalition can survive this, I'm not convinced. There is a growing move now in the opposition to embrace the idea of an emergency government of technocrats. And really, it would only need a a small faction within Berlusconi's coalition, you know, 20 or so members of parliament to defect, then the government will fall. And five of them, by the way, have been served with arrest warrant in connection with various scandals. If those five were not voting in parliament today, the government's majority would be even slimmer. Last question, then. If we are seeing the end of the Berlusconi era in the middle of a mounting economic crisis, what kind of political forces are emerging in Italy? I mean, is it, would it just be back to the centre-left or a technocrats government, or are there new parties, the Northern League, far left, far right? Any sign of that? Far left and far right, no. I, I don't think there's any, any chance of that. It would be a, a shift to the centre, I think. A crucial figure is the head of state, Giorgio Napolitano. He's very old and quite respected, and he's an ex-communist and his relations with Berlusconi are extremely tense. Napolitano certainly doesn't want new elections. I mean, he could, if the government collapsed, try and steer the country in the direction of new elections, but Napolitano's preference would be to try and form a new government. And the speculation is that he would try and find a respected figure outside politics who could sort of hold the government together. A year ago, it would have been Mario Draghi, the the governor of the Bank of Italy, but of course he's going to be head of the European Central Bank within a few months. So one of the names now most often cited is Mario Monti, the former EU commissioner who's now the president of Bocconi University in in Milan. But it could be someone else, of course. But that, I think, is the idea where Napolitano and a lot of people would like to take Italy, an interim government for two years, to sort of shake up some economic reforms, also amend what is widely seen as a corrupt and disastrous electoral law, and then take Italy to elections as scheduled in 2013. Guy, thank you very much indeed. Our final topic for today is India and the bomb blasts in Mumbai earlier this week. Serena Tarling spoke to the FT's Rahul Jacob, who's in Delhi, about the explosions, and she asked him to explain what had happened. 
at rush hour Tuesday evening around 7 o'clock, there were three synchronized bomb blasts in uh, busy, densely packed areas of Mumbai. The pattern of the bomb blasts have made police suspect that it might be a domestic terrorist outfit called the Indian Mujahideen. This is, as we understand, a group that has been involved in bomb blasts in other Indian cities in the past couple of years. And their modus operandi, according to police, is to use homemade bombs and to leave them in the traditional metal lunch carriers, all of which fits. But there's no absolutely definitive evidence yet. And how has the government handled the attack? For a government that was getting hammered for bungling a reshuffle that was seen not radical enough, not decisive enough. A terrorist attack would seem to be the worst possible event that could follow months of the government being uh, criticized for uh, not acting decisively enough on several things, various telecom scandals and other corruption scandals. To everyone's surprise, I suppose, given the last few months, the government was actually quite resolute, was very good at keeping people informed, appealing for calm. The Home Minister, P. Chidambaram, who's responsible for internal security, uh, was giving two-hour updates. The chief minister in Maharashtra, the state that Mumbai is the capital of, was also quite visible speaking to news anchors, and both resisted the urge to rush to any judgment as to who was involved, which was the statesmanlike thing to do. And I believe Rahul Gandhi's also stepped in and made a comment. Yes, today while on a tour of Orissa where he's been visiting tribal people who've been affected by the government uh, there has uh, tried to acquire land, which has become a huge controversy. Rahul Gandhi was addressing a news conference and he said that India could not ward off every single terrorist attack. The opposition seized on this and said that it's an irresponsible thing to say and that it would lead to complacency. Rahul has just been on a four-day walking tour in the state of Uttar Pradesh. What is the significance of this? I think what Rahul Gandhi is trying to do is strengthen the Congress in Uttar Pradesh, which is a traditional Congress based till about 15 or 20 years ago. Then the votes splintered along caste lines. He's trying to essentially put the House together again and build a strong uh, grassroots organization in Uttar Pradesh. It's also a way for him to project himself onto the national stage by being seen to go to people's homes directly. It's not what Indian politicians normally do. They prefer to be in cars with outriders and a little red light on top of the car that gets traffic out of the way. In a sense, he is consciously or not harking back to traditions of his great-grandfather, Jawaharlal Nehru, who was India's first prime minister, who, as a freedom leader in 1920, went to eastern Uttar Pradesh to protest against arbitrary taxes placed upon peasants there by landlords. What Rahul is doing is essentially, one of his aides told me, projecting himself as a neta, uh, that's a leader who goes to people's homes and rather than expects them to come and kowtow to him. Is he positioning himself to succeed Singh now? 
I think given that the Singh government has for the past six months to eight months been in a state of complete kind of rudderless journey with uh, policy decisions either being postponed or ducked, a kind of total loss of momentum. In that context, more and more people in the Congress and outside of it think it's only a matter of time before Rahul Gandhi steps up and um, agrees to be Prime Minister. That was Serena Tarling talking to Rahul Jacob earlier. And that's it for this week. My thanks to Ben Fenton in the studio, Guy Dinmore in Rome and Rahul Jacob in Delhi. World Weekly is produced by LJ Filatrani. Till next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.